Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. There's big news out of the House Select Committee investigation into the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Former President Trump and the committee squared off in federal court over whether the National Archives can release Trump White House documents subpoenaed by the committee. The judge in the case is expected to decide whether a former president can assert executive privilege. And former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, who took part in a scheme designed to overturn the 2020 election, appeared before the committee, but refused to answer any questions. In other news, a grand jury indicted Igor Danchenko, a Russian analyst who contributed to the Steele dossier on charges of lying to the FBI. He's the third person to be charged in the Durham probe into the origin of the FBI's Russia investigation. And the trial started for the three men who were charged with killing Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man last year. Preet Bharara and I discuss all this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community. Now, the other thing that's striking about this case, pun intended, <laughs> is the way that some jurors were actually unintended. But then when I said it, I wanted to have intended it. <laughs> if, that makes, <laughs> if that makes any sense. There's a controversy over the striking of jurors. So the main jury consists of 12 members of the community 11 white people and one black person, which is not reflective of the diversity of that community. There's this issue that comes up from time to time. We can, we can explain it very quickly. Both sides have a certain number of challenges. They're called peremptory challenges, where you can remove jurors and say, we don't want them sitting on the jury. And you don't have to give any reason. So long as, per a very, very famous case called Batson v. Kentucky from 1986, so long as your reason is not discriminatory based on race or sex or some other protected class, so long as that is true or not solely on that, you can strike whoever you want. Normally, it's the case, historically, and we've talked about this with respect to a, a guy who was tried for murder six times and made successive Batson challenges. Normally, it's the case that the defense is accusing the prosecution of striking jurors. Here, it's the prosecution, because both sides have this are entitled to a, to a fair trial. Here, it's the prosecution that challenged a number of strikes of black people from the jury. How often do you see that? And, and do you think that was a miscarriage in some way? You know, so you always see it in civil rights cases. And I would categorize this here, every civil rights case I've ever characterized. I've made a reverse Batson challenge. But here's the problem. The nuance is real different when it's the prosecution that's alleging that the jury selection process is tainted with racial animus. If you're the defendant, you make your bats and challenges, and you've got an issue on appeal if you're convicted. It doesn't work that way if you're the government, <laughs> right? Because if you lose the case, there is no appeal. Double jeopardy has attached. And beyond can, that— can I, can, I tell a quick, can I tell a quick story about yeah. that? Because you make another, to the extent we're trying to educate— lay people about the law. There was a, a federal district court judge who I won't name in the Southern District of New York, which is a hard job to get, life tenure and all, and famously, that judge, and it's not completely atypical, had, had never done criminal work, had done civil litigation in private practice. When one of my fellow prosecutors was arguing about an issue, <laughs> the judge says to the prosecutor, and this is a sitting federal district court judge with life tenure, says, you've made your record you can raise it on appeal. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Not understanding the point you just made, 
which is it's the end of the road for the prosecution. If the, if the bad ruling results in an acquittal, there's no appeal. And it's not just the end of the road for the prosecution. If the judge were to give the government the benefit of a Batson strike and remove a juror, it creates some uncertainty under the law whether the defendant would be able to argue if there was a conviction on appeal that he was deprived of a proper jury. I I think the law suggests that it's not structural error and not directly appealable, but it, it does involve some litigation risk. So, It's not a terrible thing to see a judge being conservative, trying to protect what everyone hopes will be a conviction down the road. By the same token, though, the the numbers here are horrible, and this is not unusual, at least in the South in juries. We have the same dynamic here where you see very few Black people, Hispanics, Asians in these jury pools compared to their percentage in the population. That may reflect how the jury pools are are drawn. They usually come off of stuff like voting rolls and driver's licenses. Because you qualify people, you exclude jurors, for instance, who aren't citizens or in some cases who have criminal convictions. But in this case, the jury that the two sides struck from had 36 white people and 12 black people. And you ended up with 11 white people and and one black people at the end on this jury. So people understand the reason this can happen is the prosecution sees the defense striking, you know, black juror after black juror. And they raise a challenge. And then in response to that, the law makes clear that if the defense, or if it's the other way around, the prosecution, but in this case, the defense, has some, and this is the language of the law, legitimate, non-discriminatory, clear, reasonably specific, and related to the case reason to strike the juror that has nothing to do with their being black or white or anything else, then it's an appropriate strike of the juror. The problem is for various people who talk about this issue and are critical of the effectiveness of the Batson rule, that it's pretty toothless. Because there's lots and lots of ways to articulate a reason apart from race that still may be a pretext. Because it still may be that you're really trying to get rid of the juror because of their race, but you have this other articulable reason that is maybe more or less persuasive depending on the the situation. You can still have a very unbalanced jury like this. And I think it's baked into the way the Batson process works. So I'm going to be legally very nerdy for a minute. We're in the 11th Circuit in Georgia. And so there's a very deliberate three-step process that the 11th Circuit has established for these sorts of bats and challenges. The reason that this is sort of self-indulgent is because it's actually one of my cases, um, a 2006 case that I argued. And the court says, here's what has to happen. The party that's making the challenge has to show a prima facie case of of animus, of racial animus, or, or saying that Batson could also apply, for instance, to gender-based strikes. And once the party that objects to the strike makes that showing of animus, then the other party, in this case the defense, has to come forward with race-neutral reasons for strikes. Here's one of the problems in Batson. You can imagine how easy it would be to argue a race-neutral reason. Well, it wasn't that that juror was black. It was that I saw her attention being distracted, and I thought maybe she wouldn't be a good and attentive juror. And so ultimately, the third step of the Batson process is a requirement that the court evaluate the credibility of that neutral, not race-based reason for the strike. And because judges are really concerned about protecting the record on appeal, they want to err in the favor of the defendant. And in this case, that means that they let these strikes of black jurors go through. 
So we'll follow what, what happens in that case. You know, there's so many things to talk about. We can't talk about everything. There's obviously another trial going on of Kyle Rittenhouse that maybe we'll talk about in the future. But I feel like, do you feel like the legal news is accelerating, Joyce? I think this week has been sort of overwhelming, and it's crazy that both Rittenhouse and Arbery are happening at the same time as the civil trial in Charlottesville over the events there. There's a lot going on specifically in, in civil rights, criminal, although the Charlottesville case is civil, but it comes out of criminal activity there. So, Preet, we should also talk a little bit about the Durham investigation. You'll recall that John Durham was a, a Trump-era U.S. attorney in Connecticut, and towards the end of the Trump administration, Bill Barr deputized him as a special prosecutor. This isn't the same type of special prosecutor statute that set Robert Mueller up as the special counsel for the investigation that he conducted. This is a little bit different of a procedure that permits you to put a sitting DOJ employee in place. And Barr was pretty clear about what he was doing. He wanted this Durham investigation to continue into the next administration. And by making the appointment in in this way, he made it very difficult for the next attorney general to curtail Durham's work. And in fact, we learned recently from the attorney general, Merrick Garland, that Durham's investigation has been funded for the next year. So this investigation makes me think about that meme that's been going around, how it started, how it's going. You know, this started as an investigation into whether the crossfire hurricane investigation into the connection between Russia and the Trump campaign, whether that was a hoax. That was something that Barr wanted to establish. But here's how it's going. We've had now three pretty low-level prosecutions for lying to federal agents. The most recent one came down just this week. It doesn't seem like the Durham investigation is living up to the promise that Barr and even Trump made for it, that it would take down this whole terrible conspiracy, this political witch hunt into the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, that may be true. I, I want to make a couple of things clear from, from my perspective. And that is, so this gentleman, Igor Denchenko, has been charged with five counts, essentially making false statements to the FBI. I don't call that a process crime. That's the way in which when people you know, on the other side of the aisle would denigrate some of the prosecutions brought by Bob Mueller, I think if it's a material lie in connection with a duly authorized investigation, it's righteous to charge such people. Now, the last case against a gentleman named Mr. Sussman, you and I were critical of because the details of the indictment made the case seem rather thin and there were issues about the materiality. I don't know as much about this. If it is the case that Mr. Jenchenko told these lies and he knew them to be lies to the FBI and they relate to representations he made about who his sources were for information that ultimately made its way into the Steele dossier, that's a crime. He should be held accountable and he should be punished. Whether or not overall the Durham investigation is living up to its billing is, I think, a good question. But if he committed the crimes, he should be held accountable for them. So I agree with that, and I suspect we'll talk about materiality of the statements. But can I just underline what you said about how important these crimes are? It's ironic. I'm teaching obstruction of justice this week to my first-year criminal students. So we, Teaching them how to do it? Exactly. Here's how to get in trouble. <laughs> you know, we're, we've studied perjury. We'll do 1001, which is the charge in this case tomorrow. And something that I say to them is that these are more than mere process crimes. If you believe that one of the most important goals of the criminal justice system is finding the truth 
and I believe that, then these are very important crimes. They're tough to prosecute, but it means that they're righteous. The question that I have here, though, is Danchenko is interviewed in 2017. The indictment suggests from January until maybe early fall, there are some interviews that go on. And the allegation is that he lies about the source of his information in those interviews. Where I'm a little bit stuck on this indictment, and maybe you can help me understand it, is how is that material, right? For this to be criminal conduct, the lies then have to affect the course of the FBI's investigation. And the allegation that I see in the complaint is, well, it caused the FBI to do a lot of work to figure out that Danchenko was lying. And I'm not entirely sure that that rings the bell for materiality. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's not as clear on materiality as some other cases are. I think when we were in law enforcement, we took a pretty broad view <laughs> I always of what did. was material. But Preet, can I just say this? If this is what materiality means, it made the FBI go do a lot of work to figure out whether it was true or not. I can think of some people like maybe Jared Kushner with his repeated problems with his security clearance. Certainly Mike Flynn, who now has a pardon, whose conduct would be far more material if this is the standard that we use. That's a question about what, why is something not happening to them, less so fair. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who've chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.